Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 68. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious code, and compromised systems. We're back once again to talk about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel. And a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. And as always for these chats, I'm joined by the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris. Doing well. Really, really exciting time. We've got our uh, Lima Charlie Mission Control Conference coming up next week, so a lot of us are getting prepped for that. But uh, it's great to be back here. I know last week's episode was a a very special one, Um, so I'm looking forward to getting back to some Intel updates. Yeah, as Matt mentioned, we missed a general Intel chat last week because we did a special episode on the recent attack on MGM Resorts and Caesars Entertainment. And as a result, we have lots to cover today. So let's dive in. The first one we're looking at today is from Intel 471. They're reporting on a campaign utilizing Bumblebee, a type of loader that has increasingly been used by threat actors affiliated with ransomware. Specifically, they've seen it used with the now defunct Conti strain, as well as a relative newcomer dubbed Akira. The threat actors behind Bumblebee have been on hiatus for the last couple of months as the bad guys and gals need vacations too, but by the end of August 2023, it appears they have spun their operations back up. On September 7th, 2023, a new campaign was observed that leveraged web-distributed authoring and versioning, or WebDAV, servers to disseminate Bumblebee payloads. In this effort, threat actors utilized malicious spam emails to distribute Windows.LNK files and zip files containing .LNK files. When activated by the user, these LNK files executed a predetermined set of commands designed to download Bumblebee malware hosted on WebDAV servers. We've talked a lot about LNK files on the show back in August where they were used to introduce the X-Worm into victims' environments. Are these maybe something that defenders want to just block completely? Is there enough of a use case for them that they are worth the security risk? Yeah, Chris, that's that's a valuable question, uh, especially because when you find something that adversaries use for delivering of malicious commands or malware, it, it always kind of jumps to like, should we should we just disable this thing, right? How widely popular is it across the environment? The problem with LNK files, uh, I shouldn't say problem necessarily, but maybe the 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 tough part about it here is that they're used widely inside of Windows and the Windows operating system, probably more than folks even realize. Um, even some forensic analysts out there don't realize just how widespread they are. So essentially, LNK files are going to get created by the operating system all the time. Um, anytime you update something, anytime you open something, if it's in a recent list, if it's in your start menu, you know, there's a lot of locations where you are actually referencing the link of something, not the thing itself. And of course, the more we get into, you know, um, indexed file systems and kind of the the way that people open and access files uh, for years now, LNKs have become kind of, you know, link files, if you will, have become m- more dependent on. Uh, so we can't disable them straight out the bat. However, you know, one thing to do is to look for what LNK files do. Um, I think we've talked a little bit before about kind of behavioral type detections and observations here. If I'm going through and looking for malicious LNK activity, I'm, I'm looking to see what those LNKs are spawning. Uh, and there's, you know, some process execution uh, kind of lineage we can draw here. There's different types of observational points where we can say, is this LNK, you know, spawning PowerShell or CMD or is it launching scripts or is it reaching out to an external location or something along those lines? And those are the types of situations where, you know, you just want to just straight block and say, 
This is not normal LNK behavior. This is definitely something that I'm going to want to put a block for in place. And I could even go as far and maybe extrapolate out a little bit and say, you know, LNKs may not necessarily be initiating network connections, right? That could be a bold enough statement to say that I'll write a detection for it. But then, of course, I can create an LNK file for like a shared folder or a shared drive. So there are cases where an LNK might lead to a network connection. So then we'll go to like RFC 1918 specifications and say, maybe I can limit, you know, the types of addresses to things that are a little bit are internal and that can help put a dent in this. So I think the way to work around these types of events is really behavioral and focus instead on what an LNK file should or shouldn't be doing and then insert your blocks there. Oh, that's great advice. Yeah, I found the slump in activity over the summer to be super interesting too. And another reminder that these are just people and not super cyber criminals. They have sick days, internal politics, and vacations apparently too. That's right. You never know. Sometimes the bad guys got to take a day off and uh, go refresh. And hey, yeah, maybe, maybe they got stuck in traffic and they just uh, decided just to take the day off. You know, it was tough. Let me just take some time off here and stay away from the malicious LNKs for a night or two while uh, I kind of decompress. But you never know. All right. The next one comes to us from eCentire, who are reporting on several attacks conducted by the Russian-linked Lockbit gang. Apparently, they were able to perform a type of supply chain attack on an MSP and two manufacturers using the target's own RMM tool to infect downstream customers and even employees with ransomware. Lockbit functions as a ransomware-as-a-service model, where other cybercriminals are recruited to conduct ransomware attacks using Lockbit's tools and infrastructure. Lockbit is one of the most pervasive and destructive ransomware groups currently operating worldwide. The FBI estimates the group has collected $91 million since its inception in the U.S. alone. In each of the attacks observed by eCentire, they found that the Lockbit hackers gained initial access to the targets using existing RMM tools or bringing in their own, a technique known as living off the land. Once they had control of these tools, they spread ransomware across the target's IT environment, or in the case of the MSP, pushed their malware to downstream customers. We have seen living on the land techniques used by threat actors many times over the past year, is there anything defenders whose organizations use these remote management tools should be thinking about? How can they keep these powerful tools out of the hands of threat actors? Yeah, this is, you know, a common problem that I think ever since kind of the initiation of ransomware that, that we've been dealing with, which is these remote management tools. And you know, it's it's tough because in a lot of times they are a legitimate part of business. Uh, you know, when we, especially when we talk about kind of MSSPs and MDRs and firms like that. Uh, they they need to have a way to provide some sort of remote access to their customer environments that they can, you know, do what they're supposed to do, do what they were hired to do and whatnot. And unfortunately, every time we put one of these things in play, it's another opportunity for an adversary to break in and, and get through. This is another area where it's really tough to say, all right, let's outlaw the tool, right? But to that effect, uh, one thing that I would highly recommend for any kind of service provider or, or security team that's out there is if you do have a remote or a remote management tool or an RMM in your environment, just kind of catalog and know what that tool is and then write detections for anything but that, you know? Uh, sometimes it's a little bit easier said than done. So, you know, if if my third-party vendor utilizes a tool that is not RDP, then it's really easy to just say, all right, if it's RDP, it's it's not authorized, right? But understand the difference between you're creating a detection or you're looking for activity that may be legitimate, just may not be authorized at that point. So we can't flag everything as malicious, right? And that's going to take a little bit of tuning and understanding. It's also going to take some policy changes and user education. 
So if you've got, you know, system administrators who are used to kind of doing things their own way, they're likely leaving vulnerable ports open, vulnerable services running, or, you know, using credentials that are really easy to guess or things like that. You, you want to really be careful about those avenues and shore up some of those first. And then I would say moving towards detection of living off the land techniques is going to be a useful one after that. But the goal, I think, is to try and catch these things a little bit earlier on. And that's also true of adversaries who are bringing their own RMM tools. And, you know, I know we've seen things like uh, AnyDesk and Atera, ConnectWise and things like that. You know, I'm going to say straight off the bat, these are known executables, right? I know they're legitimate programs, but they're known executables. They're signatures written for them. If those things show up in the environment and they are not on an authorized list, shut them down. You can always deal with the sysadmin who calls and says, I can't do my job because security is blocking my remote access tool. Cool. I'll put an exception in. We'll go through the paperwork, right? But I would rather take that call than I would say, well, I let the tool through because I wasn't sure. And it turns out it was, you know, a ransomware attack. So I think remote management tools, you know, they're known. It's not a piece of malware that the adversary writes themselves. It's not a one-liner PowerShell script with a ton of obfuscation in it. It's it's a tool. It's it's an executable. It's known. The hashes are known out there. Its capabilities, its ports, its its protocols, its functionality are known. Write detections around those. And then if you see it, you spot it. Shut it down until someone either complains or an adversary decides to go another way, and we'll detect that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because the MGM attack was socially engineered to gain access and I don't know how you fix that outside of protocols and processes. Exactly. And that's, that, that's, that's one of the tough parts is, you know, when, when it comes to remote management tools, and, and I'll say that, you know, this particular case is, is not unique. It's very common, but it introduces an additional complexity, uh, which is in the form of MSPs using RMMs to infect their downstream customers and stuff like that. And or I should say MSPs use RMM for their job adversaries, you know, go from the MSP downstream. Where this gets really tough for a lot of organizations, Chris, is if I sign on with an MSP, an MSP sometimes gets to dictate the terms, right? Like, hey, this is the remote management tool that we use. And if it's like, well, I I think that thing is vulnerable, they can say, well, this is what we use. So that's it, right? I'm not going to re-architect my entire MSP business because one customer doesn't like this remote management tool. And, And as abrasive as that can sound, it's unfortunately the drive that a lot of MSPs have is they're like, hey, I've got, you know, hundreds or thousands of customers. We all use this thing. This thing works really well across the board. Statistically, it's worked very well for us. We have a great price or whatever it is. This is what you need to install. And the MSP isn't intentionally trying to infect anybody, but if they're using an outdated version or a vulnerable version, or if they're essentially leaving some holes open for an adversary to walk through, then they're creating a really easy link between those customers downstream. And that's where it gets tough because as an organization who hired that MSP, I, 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 I didn't really have a choice, you know? And it's tough to say, well, this is a thing that, you know, just has to happen to us, which is why I'd go the route of, hey, security team, if you've got a security team, our MSP uses you know, uh, whatever it might be, right? Um, any desk, for example, just for conversational sake. We need to wrap detections and controls around this like you would any vulnerable third-party web application. You would wrap detections and controls around it. I think the same approach should be taken for some of these RMMs because it's going to help lock them down. And again, I don't care 
if a sysadmin decides to do something unique and novel and I stop that with the detection and then we can correct that behavior. What I care about is an adversary who introduces a, an entire tool suite into my environment and we don't find out about it until after the attack. Mm-hmm. And I imagine with these kind of tools either taken over or installed, it's pretty easy to stay slow and low if the goal isn't uh, ransomware because they just look like regular business process. And that's it. And then, you know, to add add salt to that wound, if you take over the MSP's account, which is often a very high privileged account, you know, the auditing and monitoring might not even be there or you are doing things that the MSP was hired to do, you know, as, as, as kind of as weird as that sounds. And I, I, I've, I've used an analogy about this before of uh, if anyone is familiar kind of with like security guards who have walking pads. You know, they've got those little things they need to check in with, but they walk around the perimeter or something and there are specific points where they need to check in. Okay. That's expected behavior. If someone puts on a security uniform and walks around and does those specific checkpoints, to me, that behavior at a high level looks normal, right? I'm not capturing the fine granular point where they're also casing the joint as they're walking around because they just, they blend in and and it fits really well. So this is one of those complex scenarios where you've got an adversary that's kind of hiding inside of a lot of noise and it's tough, you know, for security teams to be able to easily discern between those two levels of noise there. But it's, it's definitely something that, you know, we're going to have to get better at because ransomware adversaries kind of, as this article points out, are are finding a lot of success in that. And we, we really don't want them to be successful in that because they, subvert and evade all the confidence we've got in MSP. And that's really not the way it should be. Mm -hmm. All right. So this next one being reported is related to the now infamous scattered spider who is responsible for the attacks on MGM resorts and Caesars entertainment. The group is called Luker dash three or Luker three. That is L U C R dash three. They are a financially motivated threat actor that leverages identity providers or IDPs as initial access into an environment with the goal of stealing intellectual property that can be used for extortion. At a high level, initial access is gained by compromising existing identities in the IDP, tools like Okta Identity Cloud, Azure AD, or Entra, and Ping Identity Ping 1. The threat actors use SaaS applications such as document portals, ticketing systems, and chat applications to learn how the victim organization operates and then how to access sensitive information. Attribution for the group has been difficult, and researchers have begun to track the individual personas separately. Further confusing things, some personas appear to be affiliates of the Alfi with access to deploy Black Cat ransomware. This, with the focus on IDPs, I'm assuming where the overlap with Scattered Spider is found. How do we protect against threat actors like this that leverage native features of the tools already in the environment? Matt, it seems... You know, Chris, I think this is um, another opportunity, you know, kind of from that... Uh, trusted entity perspective, those applications or those third parties or that access that you've kind of trusted to get into your environment. Um, I, I, I honestly think that one of the best things that security teams can do is audit and understand the different mechanisms that folks can use to get into their environment or to authenticate into their environment and make sure you wrap security controls around them. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those kind of adages of like, well, if I'm doing this particular thing, I'm inherently secure, you know, and I'll use multi-factor authentication as an example where multi-factor authentication for many years has been the answer to solve different types of attacks. And don't get me wrong, or I should say to mitigate different types of attacks. And and don't get me wrong that 
mitigation is extremely important. And if you think of, and I think I've probably used this metric before, if you think of attacks on a sliding scale from zero to 100%, if I can implement something like MFA and I can knock out 80% of attacks, then that's a huge win. The other 20% we'll deal with when we get there, right? But it's not just the act of enabling MFA. It becomes another thing that I've got to protect. Now, is it worth that 80% reduction? Absolutely. But it's another thing I've got to wrap controls around and, you know, bring in those logs, bring that log set in. And as a SOC team, make that trade-off that says, all right, I don't have to worry about these low-level single-factor attacks anymore because I've mitigated them with this implementation and that implementation and this, this, that, that, and that, right? I think that is one way of going about it is understanding the different connections into your environment and then wrapping controls around them. The other area where this becomes really, really critical, Chris, is when those mechanisms are either misconfigured or improperly implemented. Um, I've actually seen, I've, I've worked some cases in my time where MFA was improperly implemented inside of an environment and adversaries were able to compromise it simply because it just, it wasn't set up correctly, you know, and, and this is where I, I tend to sometimes really read into threat reports to see where adversaries like super, super skilled or were they just lucky in the way that they encountered something. And sometimes you see both, right? A, a, a very privileged API key leaked out through a GitHub repo. It, that's luck um, from an adversary perspective, right? There, now, there may have been a social engineering call that forced somebody to do that. I don't know. But a lot of times that's just luck. Like, hey, I got lucky. These people leaked their key. We're all set, you know? That does not translate into advanced AWS credential harvesting techniques and things like that, right? They got lucky in that case. Um, sometimes MFA falls into the same boat, right? Sometimes you run into an account that doesn't have it configured yet and you configure it with like a Google voice number or something. That's that what happened in the case that I worked uh, a few years ago. Um, in other cases, you do get advanced adversaries who are able to socially engineer their way into taking over an MFA account and then subsequently using that to move further. And I think that's what we're seeing with this Lucre 3, if it is. And again, I'm, I'm also hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, but at the same time, uh, there's just so many different group names inside of this blog post, but I do think it's an interesting one, um, an interesting approach of how they've got that IDP crossover with these different types of groups, the, the scattered spider, UNC 3944, storm 0875, so on and so forth. Um, but I, I, again, I do think that, uh, wrapping controls around the different types of things and access into your environment are very, very important things to have in place. I mean, just reading through this one here, you know, looking at the different types of capabilities, um, privilege escalation was done in AWS. Um, they had uh, persistence established and maintained inside of Azure AD, Okta, or AWS as well. And I mean, there's just so many opportunities here to say, okay, my attack surface includes AWS. Let me bring in those logs, monitor and write detections around it, you know? Um, my attack surface includes Azure AD or, or Entra ID or whatever it's called now. Let me, again, let me bring in those logs and, and, and wrap detections around them. So that way I turn that gap into something I can actually manage or deal with. And it's alerting me to activity. And then, you know, next thing we know, adversaries find it a lot harder to abuse these systems. And yeah, it's often about making life a little more difficult and reducing the statistical probability of being breached. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Do, do you think there's a future where uh, in the corporate environment, everybody's got YubiKeys plugged into their laptops to access these SaaS services? Is that going to reduce the number of problems we have like this? I'll tell you what, I'd love to see it. And I know some organizations that have done it. And yeah, they've seen a significant reduction in attack surface just because you've got that physical element that's got to be there. You know, um, I think where and, and Chris, we've talked about this a lot over the past few weeks, maybe the past few months, even a lot of representation in the cloud from adversaries. I'm not going to say adversaries are moving to the cloud. I think they've moved to the cloud or you've got adversaries that specifically target the cloud now. But I think, you know, the shift to moving away from let me target a physical device to let me go after someone's cloud presence is an indication that in some cases it's getting more difficult. But I think it's also an indication that that's where the value is, right? That's where the money is. That That's where the thing you want to steal is. The other thing I'll note here for defenders out there is sometimes that cloud presence or that IDP is the gateway in knowing that everything is linked these days. You know, I use uh, Azure Active Directory is, is a good example of just, you know, different types of um, SSO and, and different types of kind of authentication mechanisms that are put into place. You know, I want to make it super seamless for my employees to log in in one place, and then that login carries over with them. Um, you know, we see this obviously with Google sign-on as well. I've got uh, different areas, you know, Microsoft will also utilize GitHub authentication because they've got that system there. And as an adversary, it narrows what I need to target because if I can break into one, then I can break into them all because of just the way that the authentication is shared. And that's, again, another area I think for defenders is to just understand how identification and access and things like that are federated across different environments and within your own environment. And then really understand that and then build detections around that and I'm aware so far, you know, in this this episode here, I've said the word build detections quite a lot. But honestly, I, I think it's one of those necessary steps where as a SOC, you've got to know your footprint. You've got to know your presence. I, I wish adversaries didn't do what they did, but they do. So know your presence, know your footprint and write detections for things that go outside of the normal expectations. And you'd be surprised what you'll catch. All right. The next one we got, a threat actor targeting telecommunications is being reported by Cisco Talos. They have discovered a new malware family they have dubbed HTTP Snoop being deployed against telecommunication providers in the Middle East. HTTP Snoop is a simple yet effective backdoor that consists of novel techniques to interface with Windows HTTP kernel drivers and devices to listen to incoming requests for specific URLs and execute that content on the infected endpoint. The researchers also discovered a secondary implant they dubbed Pipe Snoop, which can accept arbitrary shellcode from a named pipe and execute it on the infected endpoint. They also identified DLL and EXE versions of the implants that are disguised as legitimate XDR agents, making them difficult to detect. None of the TTPs used in the observed attacks match any known groups that Talos tracks. Is it a safe bet that we're seeing the emergence of a new state-sponsored actor here, Matt? This threat actor seems to be rather sophisticated, and given the target, I can't imagine it would be anything else. Yeah, this is one of those interesting scenarios where, you know, Chris, we're, we're looking through the landscape through the lens of, of, of one, uh, one company here, you know, um, where it's uh, one of those situations that it doesn't match. And, and I'm, I'm, there's a huge amount of credit to be given to the uh, Cisco Talos team. I'm not taking any of that away. But whenever we see a phrase such as this match is nothing we've ever seen before, right? 
remember that that's a limited view. Uh, there are some investigations and some IRs out there in the world that never see the light of day because of sensitivity, um, maybe because the, or, you know, the, the threat actor origin is so blatant in their targeting that it would cause political war if we were to let it out and stuff like that, right? So some of that happens. So I, I've always kind of, whenever I work with folks on these types of reports, I always say, remember that at some point in time, there's always going to be the first report of a thing, right? And in this case, I, I think maybe we're seeing that. And then we are maybe seeing the emergence of a new threat actor, or as you and I have noticed on this uh, on this podcast many times, maybe a threat actor kind of reinvigorated, right? Or um, kind of, you know, <laughs> changing their tactics a little bit. But to your point about who's being targeted and what they're going after and things like that, I, I do think that, you know, we are seeing a lot of reconnaissance and a lot of adversary victim education going into this. I mean, I remember looking through this blog post and, and we're, you know, we're seeing very, very targeted communications being sent through, um, HTTP and, and, uh, sorry, HTTP snoop and pipe snoop were masquerading as components of Palo Alto's cortex XDR and things like that. And I'm just going to just come out and say, in case anyone else doesn't want to, if you're targeting to your malware to look like cortex XDR, I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say that the person you're targeting uses cortex XDR or else, why else would you do that? Right? Cause I can't think of a louder indicator than, oh, we use Defender for Endpoint. Why is their Cortex running, right? That's that's a really easy question. Um, the flip side of that is, you know, if I know my victim uses Cortex and I run Cortex in there, then I'm buying time. I blend in, gives me a chance to do other types of things. And then I also found it interesting about what HTTP Snoop does. You know, a simple, new, a simple yet effective backdoor that uses low-level APIs to interact directly with HTTP device on the system, binds to specific URL patterns listening for incoming requests. And I think the blog post went and configured that it could be configured for generic HTTP URLs, but more importantly, and here's the big one, right? Uh, mimicking Microsoft Exchange web servers or Office Core location-based services. So let's just dissect those two really quick. Listening for Microsoft Exchange web services, email, Office Core's location-based services, geographic location, and things like that. Uh, I'm going to assume probably pinpointing triangulation and things like that. I might be wrong. Would love one of our listeners to correct me if, if that's wrong. But going off of the name of Office Core's location-based services URLs, I'm going to take a guess that you know they're looking to know where people are and reading their communications. This screams all sorts of espionage-related indicators and types of snooping and, and types of data collection and stuff like that. And Chris, you know, that's not really a field you kind of stumble upon, right? We've talked about ransomware being very opportunistic for adversaries. This is not opportunistic. No one wrote an HTTP snooper for Office Core's location-based services URLs on a whim. It was a target and it, and it was very well known. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of this group in the future. And you might have called it, we might be on the emergence kind of of a new group here, you know? In, this isn't an attempt to throw shade at Cisco Talus. I'm not saying that this was something that's part of their article, but the way you were speaking about it kind of brought something up for me. And I'm wondering if maybe sometimes security researchers in the you know competitive landscape that that is to get clicks, maybe exaggerate some of these claims sometimes to claim that things are new or more sophisticated than they actually are to get eyeballs. Do you think that kind of stuff happens in the research community? 
I think it definitely happens in the security research community. I I will safely say it it does not happen at the Cisco Talos side, but Chris, I'm going to extrapolate that comment out. And if we take Cisco Talos out of there and say, do some uh, threat intelligence, quote unquote, firms, companies, researchers kind of, uh, you know, embellish their results or embellish their findings and stuff like that. Um, absolutely. Uh, I won't go much further <laughs> other than that comment, but I will say that there are definitely, and, and again, Cisco Talos team, you guys are, you guys are awesome. You publish some amazing, amazing things. Um, I think Chris's question was geared towards like, do we sometimes see these, these types of things in the industry where someone's kind of claiming this super extravagant thing and whatnot? hundred percent, Chris, we see that happen. Um, I, again, I won't throw any direct shade, won't, won't name any names, but I'll just say sometimes when some, you know, ambitious researchers or young companies are kicking off and trying to get started, maybe they've got, you know, an interesting perspective on something or kind of a jump to conclusion methodology, um, threat intelligence, you know, to, to my friends out there who, who do CTI threat intelligence is a very disciplined area of work. Um, it is not a, uh, I should say it, it is not a, you know, casual comment to name the military group that is responsible for a particular thing. Right. That, that, that is, that, that is a very, very direct thing that will, that has consequences in the digital form, uh, sometimes in a kinetic form, but a lot of times in a digital form, it is a very bold statement to come out and release a report that names people and a military group and things like that. Um, and I would say that, you know, there's a lot of analysis that goes into that for every minute that we read a report, there might be a hundred hours of correlation and very deep research and skilled on the ground work that went, that went into kind of making that decision. However, we definitely do see in the security industry, and I know, Chris, you and I do our best to try and weed through the maze of all this stuff out here, but uh, sometimes you will see like over-exaggerated articles or things that are a little more, you know, FUD than they should be. Um, and, and I think in cases like that for defenders, just be careful what you're reading and, you know, do your own research, do your own kind of little cross-correlations and things like that to see if you're reading the first time or someone's embellished first time. Yeah, and just a reminder to stay a little bit skeptical and, and try and read between the lines. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good advice. All right. So the next one comes to us from We Live Security, who have stumbled upon a previously unknown backdoor being deployed in the Middle East that they have named Dead Glyph. Based on the TTPs, the targeting, and additional evidence, they've attributed Dead Glyph to the Falcon APT group with a high degree of confidence. This group is linked to the United Arab Emirates and has been active since 2012. They're known to target political activists, journalists, and dissidents in the Middle East. Dead Glyph's architecture is unusual as it consists of cooperating components, one a native x64 binary, the other a .NET, .NET assembly. Commands are dynamically received by the malware from a command and control server in the form of additional modules, and this backdoor features a number of capabilities to help it avoid detection. Do the two different languages used for cooperating components in this malware indicate that the separate teams worked independently to put this together? And does that mean we can conclude that they had project managers and sprint planning? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question, actually, Chris. I, I like the idea that these were two individual, geographically individual teams um, that kind of came together and things like that. You know, it is definitely, definitely a possibility, right? We've talked before about how these are just humans in the background. Um, so 
it's not odd to think of them, you know, maybe distributing tasks or utilizing a project management or a sprint work schedule and stuff. I'm just imagining what kind of a, a Kanban board would look like with malware, you know, creations in it. Like, you know, hey, has anyone here written the, 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 the you know, the network dumping tool, the network tracer? And it's like, no, OK, that's a priority. And that waterfall descends down to this memory module and then this registry key persistence. I mean, it would be an interesting conversation to be a part of for sure. Um I actually, when I read through this, and I don't know for sure the folks over at ESET did call this out, uh, I actually viewed this almost as an anti-forensic or an obfuscation technique where two different languages in the, you know, within the malware or within the different components, if you will, uh, may have been an interesting indication or an interesting anti-forensic technique of, okay, I'm going to go analyze this malware and it's, you know, uh, .NET. So you kind of get in that .NET mind frame. And then the next thing you know, there's a whole bunch of x64 and you're like, wait a second, hold on. This, this, this is not what I expected to see. Right. Um, now I definitely know plenty of malware analysts who could probably easily hop between the two. But I think when you get into the role of like automated analysis, um, your automated systems might pick up on one and not the other. And I'm talking everything from like, you know, automated sandboxes to like script helpers and maybe some shortcuts that folks have written in and stuff like that. Um, it would just kind of, you know, make double the work in order for you to go through that. And and in that case might be harder to find. The other thing that I thought of when I read about the two different, you know, languages within these components here, the other thing that came to mind was that they may have pulled from older code for one and utilized it, you know, and just kind of quickly repurposed it try to kind of keep it in place and then newer code for the other. And I don't know which is which, but it would be an interesting thing. And, and maybe, you know, we ESET team would have called this out, but it would be interesting to see if there is somewhere in the world, an older piece of one of the components that was just kind of, you know, maybe slightly altered to fit this malware. And then the newer piece was handwritten or, you know, completely custom written for this or, or vice versa. Um, but nonetheless, I, I do think that it's an interesting technique here. And I feel that malware analysts, you know, whoever took a look at this the first time probably had a moment of, wait a second, something's not right here, or wait a second, something's different here. And that might've been all the adversaries were trying to do is just insert that little bit of a hurdle or that little bit of a block to where now, right. If you and I go and we automate that and I automate some sort of in memory malware detection or some sort of EDR product that has rules encapsulated on it and whatnot. And it recognizes a particular binary and applies rules according to that binary structure. It might miss the other malicious things in there. So again, we'll probably see maybe as, as time goes on, but I viewed it as a little bit of an interesting anti-forensic technique and, and something that I think, you know, and to full disclosure for everyone, uh, I, I do not remember enough about the project Raven to know if my questions were answered in that previous report there, but I'll just simply state that I found it to be a really unique approach that probably gave some analysts a quick pause. And that might've been all the malware authors wanted. Hmm. I could totally see the x86 stuff being old and uh, just trying to recycle some of that old work. Yeah, absolutely. You never know, right? It's always an interesting, uh, interesting thing. And then kind of reading through it again, the executor is the x64 part of the backdoor. And this is the one that loads configuration and then initializes the .NET runtime. The .NET runtime is the one that goes through and decrypts the .NET part of the backdoor known as the orchestrator, which is located within a particular part of the executor. And then the orchestrator is the main component 
So the other thing that we might have heard, Chris, is we might just have a really rudimentary unpacker that was written in one language and unrolled, if you will, the more advanced actual orchestrator. And maybe it was just a rudimentary way of not having, you know, a PK zip header or, uh, you know, a RAR header or whatever it might have been um, in your binary instead being like, oh, it's an X64, right? And then it unpacks a .NET and it's like, oh, this is actually a really rudimentary unpacker. Who knows? Could have been a multitude of things. But nonetheless, I, I still found it a really good read and a, a huge hat tip to the folks at ESET too. This was, I believe they debuted this at their LabsCon 2023 conference and it was a fantastic read, really, really insightful, great technical detail. So thanks to the team that actually went through and reversed all of those languages for us. Yeah, it's definitely never not interesting. I like that phrase. Yeah. Our last one today is another one from Palo Alto's Unit 42. In early 2023, they started investigating a series of espionage attacks targeting a government in Southeast Asia. The attacks focused on different government entities in the country, including critical infrastructure, public healthcare institutions, public finance administrators, and ministries. These attacks initially appeared to be the work of a single threat actor. However, after further analysis, it was revealed that the attacks were carried out by separate threat actors whose activities group into distinct clusters. All the activity occurred around the same time and often simultaneously on the same machines, but were distinguished by the tools, modus operandi, and infrastructure used. Obviously, the work of APTs, Unit 42 attributes the three different groups as follows. The first is Stately Taurus, also known as Mustang Panda, and is believed to be associated with Chinese interests. The second is Alloy Taurus, also known as Gallium, and is believed to be acting on behalf of Chinese state interests. The third threat actor in this cluster is known as the Gelsemium Group, which to date has not been formally attributed to any specific state. The article provides links to further reading on the activity observed by each group, but it was getting late by the time I got to this one and I didn't go any deeper. I gotta say I'm kind of fascinated by this one at a high level. Was this coordinated or is it just such a busy part of the world for APTs that they were tripping over each other? And if it is coincidence, what is happening that has everybody so interested in this country right now? Yeah. So this is one that just like really, really, you know, speaks to first off, I, I sometimes you wish that we had an industry standard naming convention for all of these because to sit back and, and try to, you know, go through all these different names uh, can, can sometimes be a little cumbersome, especially for analysts who are trying to figure out what's going on. Right. So just to restate for everyone here, first activity, uh, the first cluster, and, and Unit 42's got a really good blog on this, a great post, technical details, everything like that. I mean, the clustering in there is fantastic. They do indicate some overlap between the three, and the overlap, I believe, was the systems that were targeted by these three different groups, and I think that was, a, that was it, right? So a couple of things happen uh, in, in cases like this. First off, uh, I've been in a situation where you've had multiple threat actors on the same system. And in some cases, it can just be, you know, opportunistic. Uh, the same threat, you know, two different threat actors bought the same set of credentials. And when they bought those credentials, they all got access and they've got persistence on this system. And maybe they know the other is there. Maybe they don't. Right. It just depends on on their kind of what they're looking for. Um, very, very similar to like some other physical analogies that, that we may crack, right? Let's say, Chris, you and I have persistence in a warehouse and I'm interested in, in the left side of the north corner and you're interested in the right side of the south corner, right? We may not ever cross paths, even though we're both inside of the same, same location there. Um, and of course, you know, not every adversary looks for other adversaries. Uh, so there's, there's kind of one takeaway there. 
the interest in that particular group, uh, without getting too much into kind of the political side of it, uh, the Unit 42 blog post does call out that the groups are alleged to be associated or operating on behalf of Chinese state interest. And I'll just simply say that the Southeast Asian region is oftentimes subjected to kind of local, and I'm talking geographical, local espionage and things like that. Um, there are definitely, you know, government interests and military units and things like that that have a very, very specific interest in certain parts of that world. And they're looking for things. They're looking for communications. They're looking for port schedules. They're looking for ship traffic going in and out. They're looking for, you know, uh, military movements and placements and things like that. I mean, that the a number of things that they'd be looking for from an espionage perspective is is very vast and very wide. What you sometimes see in these crossover cases where you've got, you know, multiple threat actors in an environment, what I've seen happen before is you will get groups that are all given directives and they all kind of execute upon those different directives and they're just kind of following orders for lack of a better term, right? So again, I'll use you and I as an example, but let's just say you and I work for the same military unit, but we work for different approaches right? And we just get given by separate commanding officers the same target list. Well, you're going to do your job, but I'm going to do my job. Now, again, similar to my warehouse example, you might be in there looking for emails. I might be in there looking for blueprints. So we might have different initiatives, right? And again, it's kind of friendly fire, kind of, but not necessarily. But my goal is to get what my commanding officer asked me to do and report it back up. My goal is not to find you. My goal is not to, hey, I don't think we're the only ones here, right? My goal is to get in there, move laterally, steal the thing, and then be done, okay? And not maybe not be done, but maintain persistence, right? Then, then that's it. That's exactly what I'm going to do, and we're going to be all set. You see that happen in some cases. And again, uh, Unit 42 folks, like the clustering and everything put together, it is a massive, massive multi graph, but it is awesome to see kind of how that crossover took place in there. Um, one other thing I'll note from a technical perspective, you know, lots of use of Cobalt Strike in this one. There was use of things like uh, Quasar Rat, I think we saw in there, and I'm looking through some of the graphs now. Um, use of uh, tools, you know, for like Mimi Cats was shown up in there, different types of dumps. There was some reconnaissance using Sysinternals tools. I mean, just really a wide, widespread use of tooling inside of this environment. But again, same exact answer as before, right? And, and Chris, I'm looking at the clusters here and I'll give you maybe a, a different approach here, right? I'm looking at two clusters. One of them has ex a pretty exclusive cobalt strike access compared to the other. Whereas the other one, you know, utilize like executable Mimi cats and stuff like that. Now, interestingly enough, two of the clusters utilize cobalt strike, but they might not have ever kind of stomped on top of each other or they might not have utilized the same systems, you know? And I think this just goes to speak to different vulnerabilities, what an attack surface looks like. And for anyone who's curious, you know, if you ever profile and understand your, your attack surface, any sort of attack surface monitoring, and you get one system that just kind of lights up like the proverbial Christmas tree, that's what this looks like. This system's vulnerable to a bunch of different software and RDP vulnerabilities and, you know, single credential exposed ports and uh, you know, privileged access with single factor passwords. And I mean, all the things just piled on top of each other. That's what they end up like. This is what it looks like when everyone gets in and gets their pound of flesh, right? 
multiple threat actors just beating the crap out of these systems. And no one knows until the adversary's stolen what they need to steal or the threat is just, or the, you know, the breach, the intrusion just gets so big that it's tough to then kind of step back and be like, oh, well, this happened because of X, Y, Z, right? So in any event, um, maybe the last little piece I'll add to this is very similar to what we talked about earlier. Remember that we are seeing this through the lens of one particular threat group, a very reputable threat group as well. Sorry, uh, not threat group, but uh, threat analysis team, Unit 42. Uh, We are seeing this through their lens, right? There is a, a very strong possibility that there's other folks doing work in the region who have observed some of the same things. And they might have more of an overlap. Now, I'm not here to dispute any of that. I like to give defenders advice. Defenders, parse through it all. You're not here to find overlaps or to double check Unit 42's work. You're here to say, how can I defend my environment against these things? And there is a wealth and a plethora of indicators and techniques and behaviors and things to look out for. So another hat tip to the teams, the folks over there at Unit 42 for giving us this really extensive report. Because it was just an awesome, awesome breakdown of what it looks like when there are way too many chefs in the kitchen. Yeah, it kind of makes me think twice the next time I'm wondering why my laptop's so hot when I'm not doing much with it. You never know. You might have multiple threat actors in there all fighting for a piece of uh, a piece of that sensitive IP, Chris. Yeah. Um, and yeah, before we go, I just wanted to put it out there. I know that we're going to be changing up the office hours at Lima Charlie come this Friday. So this podcast will be going out on September 28th. On the 29th, we're going to be doing uh, more of a guided office hours where I believe you're going to be talking about some interesting stuff. Correct. Yeah, this coming Friday, uh, for those of you who hopefully catch this episode when it comes out, Friday the 29th, you can catch us at the Lima Charlie office hours where we'll be doing uh, some of these types of discussions live, some of these threat analyses or different types of group breakdowns, detection breakdowns and whatnot. We'll be doing those live. Um, those are, uh, typically not recorded during those sessions either. So we invite everyone to jump in and see what's going on, but, uh, just another chance to kind of get hands on and break down some of the great stuff that's coming out of our community Slack. Yeah. And you can get more information on how to join those office hours at limacharlie.io slash office dash hours. And I'll put that link in the show notes along with links to all the articles that we referenced in our discussion today. Uh, huge thank you again, Matt, for coming in week after week and sharing your expertise. I think these conversations are much more valuable with your insight. Uh, they're a lot of fun, Chris. I'm great to be here and I'm looking forward to the next one. All right. Take care, sir. Take care. Bye. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.